This is a Mortarbox Media Podcast. For more podcasts and to learn how we can help you create your own, visit mortarboxmedia.com. This episode of Madison Story Slam and every episode of Madison Story Slam is sponsored by Ale Asylum. This episode is also sponsored by Resolution Health Collaborative. If you're in Madison and you need a great massage therapy clinic, visit resolution.health. When you call to make your first appointment, mention Madison Story Slam and you can get a discount. Thanks, Ale Asylum, and thanks, Resolution, for believing in what we do. Hello and welcome once again to another wonderful episode of Madison Story Slam. I know for you subscribers, it's been a couple of months, maybe even three months since you've heard an episode from us. I am so sorry. I am the worst. It's me, Adam Rosted here, your host. Uh, Here's the deal, guys. I have been working very hard on our live events that happen the third Saturday of every month at the Wilmar Center. And uh, aside from that, we have been starting to do video, live video of our live events. So uh, the third Saturday of every month at 7 p.m. Central Time, you can tune in on our Facebook page by visiting facebook.com slash Madison Story Slam. And you can watch our live storytelling events live on Facebook. And so along with that, I take the video recordings of everything and I've been editing them down to individual videos and posting them on YouTube. So if you missed those events on Facebook Live, you can visit YouTube, search for Madison Story Slam, and you can see every story that's been told at the last couple of events. Uh, So yeah, that's why I've been neglecting the podcast. I'm trying to get into a rhythm of being able to do both the podcast and video. It's been just a little bit difficult. But I will tell you this, our events this year have been incredible. If you live in the Madison area and you haven't been to a Story Slam yet, uh, you're missing out. And and I would encourage you to come to the next one. Speaking of the next one, it is Saturday, December 15th at the Wilmar Center. Doors open at 6 and stories start promptly at 7. And uh, the theme is peer pressure. We've all been pressured into doing things, or maybe we've resisted uh, doing something because our peers wanted us to do it. And so we've all got stories about the times that uh, those things have happened. And hopefully we've got some good stories about those things. Uh, On this episode of the podcast, we're going to hear from my good friend. I I feel comfortable saying good friend these days. It's the second time he's been on. It's Dean Strang. You might know Dean as the lawyer for Stephen Avery, one of the lawyers for Stephen Avery in the documentary Making a Murderer. He is featured prominently in the first uh, the first release of that. There's now like a second season. I don't know what they're calling it. A second part uh, of several episodes. But Dean uh, is featured prominently in the first season. In this episode, we talk a little bit about the Stephen Avery case, uh, but we actually tried to avoid talking about it too much. And we had several questions come in from Reddit. So if you're someone from Reddit and you're looking for your question being answered, we do a rapid fire question and answer time at the end. Again, this is Dean Strang from Making a Murderer and me chatting. Take it away, Adam and Dean. 
And you don't edit yourself out, right? I mean, it's, no, no, no. Yeah, you'll, you'll they'll hear both of us. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Do you? Or is it better to have the headphones on? Or? The only reason I would suggest headphones is because with these microphones specifically, um, you want to be as close as you can, and okay. the headphones kind of help you because as you're talking, people people tend to like lean back yeah. and get away from it, and so then you can hear that you're not really in there. And then your your volume adjuster is this one right here. If it's too loud or too soft, you can adjust that. But yeah, so. Oh, see, I'm deaf in one year, so I always have to have it loud. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Cool. Um, so let's get started here. So we're here with uh, Dean Strang for the second time. You're only the second uh, person who I've had on two times on the on the show. Well, thank you. Yeah, I. Uh, so for the Madison Story Slam podcast, uh, you are the your first episode is our most listened to episode. I can see the stats and things. And uh, since posting on Reddit and Facebook yesterday, just asking for questions and seeing what people are saying. Just in 24 hours, I have had 300 listens to that specific episode. And what's so funny to me is that um, the main comment that I've gotten from strangers in the last 24 hours is how good the audio quality is. They say, what a great interview, but the audio quality is great. And the funny thing for me is at that time, I was recording on two $25 microphones to an iPad and I, and I commented and I said, well, now I have two $400 microphones and I'm, I'm recording to something much more expensive than an iPad. So uh, I'm looking forward to, it, forward to this conversation. But Dean, how are you, first of all? I'm, I'm just fine. I'm, I'm terrific. Actually. Life is good? Yeah, life is good. I like to hear that. Um, so I don't know. I guess we should dive right in. Um, it's been a while since I've had a, a guest on, and we have we've done an an episode that hasn't just been a story slam episode. So I might be a little bit rusty, but this is just a conversation. Um, I, you know, the first thing that I'm curious about is <laughs> we're really getting into the thick of it here now. I'm trying really hard to not ask you too much about Stephen Avery because. I think you have a lot to offer other than that, and I want to dig into that. But I think we'll start there, and then we have several questions from Reddit. I mentioned to you before we started that maybe at the end we'll do a, a rapid-fire version of question time. Um, I, I'm here to, I'm here to play along and absolutely, absolutely follow you, um, Kathleen Zellner. I, I'm curious. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Ken Kratz. When he did that that press conference before the trial, and it was just really, I don't know what the word you'd use for it, but it, I mean, it was wrong. Do you think that's a good word? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's much difference between what Ken Kratz did and what Kathleen Zellner's doing currently, as far as she's very vocal in the media and on social media about her blame game uh, on, on naming different people that she thinks did it. Do you think there's a huge difference between those two things? There and, is. and I want to say, uh, you're not Ken. <laughs> I want to say, Dean, <laughs> first of all, you have a very different voice than Ken does. Um, I, I want to say, if you don't feel comfortable answering any of these questions, obviously, you know, you don't have to. So. Of, of course, I'm, I'm not in custody. That's right. I can ask for my lawyer to stop right. talking anytime. <laughs> That's right. Exercise my right to silence. I do think there's a significant difference between Ken Kratz's March 2, 2006 press conference and at least the, the social media presence of which I'm aware that uh, Kathleen Zellner maintains. Um, 
we, we and we can talk about this just very practically, or we can talk about it in terms of the ethical rules that bind lawyers. Yeah, very well. Let's start with the ethical. Um, the comment by lawyers outside of courtrooms is fine, insofar as it doesn't have a reasonable likelihood of affecting a fact finder. Sure. Okay. I mean, that's, that's for our purposes, at least those are the ethical left and right white stripes that you have to drive within. Um, Making a comment that you reasonably should anticipate could affect a fact finder, could have an impact on the outcome of a pending proceeding gets you into ethical trouble potentially, yeah. Yeah. or at least puts you on the shoulder of the road and at, <laughs> and at risk ethically. Okay, and so you're in a. It's a very different situation when you're immediately after charging. Yeah, that's and, true. And months before a jury trial to a group of twelve citizens, than it is not only after trial but after a direct appeal and in a much later post-conviction stage of proceedings. I mean, the the likelihood that three judges somewhere would be affected by what Ken Kratz or Dean Strang or Kathleen Zellner or anybody else with a law license might say on social media or might say on a podcast or a TV interview is really pretty low, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... um, you know, I I I I don't always have a high view of appellate courts, but I'll give them that much credit <laughs> that they're probably not deciding cases on the basis of what well, some lawyer says. You know, in the media, appellate or, courts are one thing, but uh, let's say that Kathy or Kathleen is um, successful in getting Stephen a new trial. Mm-hmm. Are all these things and and being so open about everything is that going to taint a jury pool? I don't think foreseeably, um, you know, I, I really don't. I mean, yeah. is it possible? I, sh- I, I suppose, but we're not, we're not held to prescience. We're held to reasonable foreseeability. And, you know, again, practically speaking now, opening the scope out beyond the narrow legal ethical rules, if you speak practically here, not only are we well, are, you know, we're 12 plus years oh, after yeah. a trial for both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, um, and we're past the direct appeals, but we're also now almost three years into a making a murderer world, right? Well, yeah, I think we're yeah. over three years at this point. No, de- on- no, December 15, December 18, 2015. So, December 18, oh, you're right, you're right, just three years, you're right, you're right. Yeah, we're coming up on on three years since Making a Murderer came out, the first yeah. 10 episodes came out. And, you know, however many people might follow a Twitter account or hear a radio interview or a, you know, a podcast or something, it's a small number compared, I think, to the number of people who've seen Making a Murderer. Oh, yeah. I'm old. Or at least, <laughs> Absolutely. At least have picked up on that basic story. Yeah. You know, the, the, the um, storyline of Making a Murderer 
through friends, relatives, you yeah. know, secondhand. So, you know, realistically, the likelihood of anything Kathleen Zellner says now, or for that matter, you know, Ken Kratz, Jerry Butin, anybody else on Dean Strang. Song, Dean Strang. Um, the likelihood that we at this point would have an impact on what a fact finder would do is is low and highly speculative yeah uh, any in any event at, at this point i mean with no reason you know necessarily to expect a new trial coming down the pike anytime soon um so you know i do i do think there's a considerable difference both ethically and practically now i would you would you no i personally am okay. not someone who um participates in in social media yeah um and, and in fact i uh, i tweeted at jerry and i said i'm interviewing dean what is the question that the world needs him to answer what 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 is the answer they need to hear and he said isn't it about time he joins twitter <laughs> no it's not no it's not about time that i joined twitter uh, you know i i think um my question was not a, an accusatory question no, at kathleen I, I, or anything no i understand that i actually think that she's doing that because it only helps steven and it only helps her case to stay in the public eye that that's the kind of feeling that I get that like, hey, don't forget that this is a thing. Well, and that of course isn't an adequate justification if there's otherwise something wrong with what she's doing. Sure. Uh yes, you've got a, a duty to advance a client's interest zealously, but that's not your only ethical consideration. I don't think though that she's run afoul of uh, yeah, I don't any either. ethical proscription. I suppose I'm not the person who can make a judgment on uh, you know, ethics for attorneys. I've I've not been to law well, school. Well and, no, sure you can. You're a member of the public. And, I suppose. And Yeah, I mean, but I mean it's not like lawyers are uh, elected officials, you know what I mean? Some no, of, some of them aren't. No, no, but but we do at least in a in a in an indirect sense hold yes. a position of public trust. Um, and, you know, but I, I think we're into a, a realm of style decisions yeah. or personal preference decisions with really everything I've seen on social media or heard in the conventional media, uh, read in the conventional media. I, I really think we're in a realm of, of permissible preferences and 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 um you know style choices sure so switching gears here i want to talk a little bit about editorial cartooning and your history with the uh subject matter of that <laughs> tell us about like i was listening to i believe it was the uh deconstructionist podcast it was a podcast you were on maybe two years ago and uh you you talked about how you went to school to be an editorial cartoonist and you realized how there wasn't a 50-year career path for that but it sounds like you were pretty passionate about doing that and i'm i have a few questions do you still doodle do you still draw um do you ever look back and go i should have stuck with that well uh, all right for, uh, from about age 8 uh, until 21, um, 
being an editorial cartoonist is what I wanted to do with my life. From age eight? Yeah, I, wow. drew, I had a little cartoon strip at age eight called Pete. The star was a dog. Um, I love that, <laughs> Pete. A dog named Pete. Um, and as I look back now, it it was at least influenced by, and I hope not a ripoff of, of Peanuts or Snoopy. Sure. The dog didn't look like Snoopy, but... Um, you know, but I, I loved cartooning, and um, by the time I was in junior high school, I was drawing political cartoons, editorial cartoons, one-panel yeah. cartoons, typically. And that's really what I thought I wanted to do with my life. And um, uh, continued to pursue that, cartooned in high school paper, college papers, two of them, Um and then, you know, at about age 21, I think when I was a junior in college, um, I, I actually made what I still regard as one of the more mature decisions I've ever made, um, which is that it probably was not going to be a 50-year career for me. Yeah. Uh, really for two reasons. Um, one, it's very solitary. You know, you you attend the editorial board meeting in the morning, get a sense of what the editorial, you know, policy of the paper is, or what the what the editorials the next day will say. You know what what side the paper's going to take on whatever the current issues are, and, and then make your own decision about what your comic is about. Yeah, and 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 in, at most With that papers, influence. Yeah, at, at the time. Now we're talking back in the late seventies and very early eighties. At the time. Um, when there were these things called newspapers that had... <laughs> well, there's the, when people bought these things called yes, newspapers. <laughs> yes, and that had editorial cartoonists on their staff if they were, you know, a major city newspaper. Yeah. yeah at most papers, you were going to be constrained by the overall editorial policy of the sure. paper. You weren't going to be able to draw something diametrically... <laughs> Opposed to what you know, the editorial page you can't, editor you can't be was a, writing. A GOP a, cartoonist on a liberal-leaning newspaper, probably not. Yeah, um, but in any event, you, so you would you'd get a sense of where the other editorial page contributors were going for the next twenty-four or forty-eight hours, and then you would hustle back to your office, and you'd be working against. If it was a morning paper, you'd be working against about a two p.m. deadline. Um, afternoon paper, you know, end of the day deadline for the next afternoon. But you're working under a pretty tight deadline, and um, what you were doing is closing your door, trying to shut out the city room noise, and um, hoping <laughs> that inspiration wasn't blocked, you know, and that you were going to be able to get an idea and get it down on paper. And um, when I filled in over summers at the Milwaukee Sentinel, which then was the morning paper in Milwaukee sure. had not yet, the editorial content had not yet merged with the afternoon paper, the Milwaukee Journal. Um, you know, at most I'd have time to take a blue penciled sketch out into the city room and, you know, stick it under the nose of a reporter or two who looked like they weren't going yeah. crazy themselves <laughs> at the moment. To see if they thought it was funny or if they got it. And then, you know, and then you'd ink it and and get it in. So it it, it was a very solitary, is a very solitary job under a good deal of daily deadline pressure. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I 
I don't know that I could have articulated in exactly these words, but what I was thinking at age 21 is I don't know that I want to be a solitary worker. Yeah. Are you, do you consider yourself pretty social? No, but I consider <laughs> myself collegial. Okay. At work. I sure. mean, I, I enjoy collaborative work. Yeah. work with yeah. people. And I think I do better when I'm challenged by smart coworkers sure. around me. Um, and so I thought that that's that could be a problem over time. I, yeah, it for just, sure. It could be isolating, and I already am not terribly social. Isolation is not what I need more of, probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, do you think that um, your passion for for editorial cartooning, you know, it's it's more than just drawing. It is taking a stance and and uh, aligning your stance with the employer stance, you know, being able to do that. Do you think that prepared you as a lawyer at all? Because when you're yeah, an attorney, if you're defending a client, don't you kind of have to, to a certain extent, set aside any of your misgivings or uh, whatever and kind of align yourself with that client and say, okay, this is what we're going with? Well, yes and no. And it's, okay. that's an, Adam, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's really a pretty perceptive question. Um as to the lawyering, yes and no. I, I personally think that I, at least as a lawyer, cannot be persuasive unless I believe what I'm saying, unless, sure. I'm, unless I'm being true to myself. In so sense. let me, I'm uh, sorry for interrupting you, but so you, you think that you would be more ineffective if, if you didn't necessarily believe what you're saying, if you're presenting stuff as this is a possibility, my client might not be guilty because this might be a possibility, you would be more effective if you feel like you could actually believe that and say, you're wrong, my client is innocent because this. Well, you, as a lawyer, you have to be pretty careful about asserting knowledge sure. or, or um, asserting uh, sort of superior knowledge, if you will. But I. That said, I do think that um, an affirmative narrative is more persuasive just generally in law and generally in life. An affirmative narrative is more persuasive than saying, well, maybe this and maybe that. Sure. Um, but, you know, but your question really was a good one because although, you know, I think that as a lawyer for myself to be persuasive, I have to, I have to, to, to settle in on a theory that I believe yeah. and that that resonates with me as being truthful and um, and real, you know, aligning with reality. Um, a cartoonist, in a sense, also has to do that. They're both cartooning, editorial cartooning, and lawyering are advocacy. Hmm. At least, you know, the, the sort of trial lawyering. Yeah. That's advocacy, and editorial cartooning is advocacy too. You're um, you're taking a stand on an issue where people might disagree, and where reasonable minds very well might differ. And but you're advocating a position, typically, yeah, um, or should be as a cartoonist. And that I think too, you know, it it can't be driven just by what. The other members of the editorial board think you've got to find something that you believe in that you know you're willing to sign your name to. Um, so yeah, I mean, interesting comparison that I had not considered before. Now, one 
you know, I said there were a couple or, or, or even three reasons that I decided not to pursue cartooning in the end. Yeah. That I, that I turned away from that at age 21. And the second really was that, um, you know, the, the cartoonist is, the editorial cartoonist is always pointing out a problem, but he or she is never Not really offering, offering a solution yes, to it. You're and, very and, right. And it's important to point out the problem. It's important to cast it in sharp relief if you can. And a really good cartoon does help people see with clarity a problem or a bit of hypocrisy by an elected official or whatever it is. Yeah. But it's not constructive in the sense of pushing beyond the problem and saying, what do we do about it? But do you think, uh, so I would say that there are people who point out the problems and there are people who uh, are problem solvers. And uh, I think it's actually pretty rare that a problem solver also has the ability to see the problem clearly. They need the person who's going to point out the problem. So you say it's not they're not constructive, but I, I, would, I would counter that and say they're part of the constructive process. And I accept that, actually. I mean, because you're right, of course, that you know, no one person can do it all. Sure. And pointing out a problem is an important first step to then people coming along and, and helping, yeah. you know, find a solution to that problem. So yes, as a you know, as one cog in a wheel or one spoke in the wheel so to speak, absolutely you're right. I just thought in the end that I'd like to you want to be I a could, problem solver. Do more than point yeah. out problems but have contribute to solving them if I could and um at its best um the, the sort of legal work I do is problem solving work at its best. It, yeah. it isn't always but it can be and should be um, and often is. So, you know, th that those two reasons and then a very practical one of saying, you know, once I got to know people who were editorial cartoons who were doing that for a living, what I came to realize is at that time, and, you know, I had no way to foresee the sort of change that the internet brought. Sure. But at that time... The, a career as an editorial cartoonist would mean starting at, a, you know, a Sun medium <laughs> medium sized newspaper. Yeah. You know, the Fort Wayne, Indiana paper. Sure. A, a, a daily in a town of maybe fifty or a hundred thousand people, trying to hook on, trying to get to the Washington Post or the New York Times. Well, and trying to hook on with a syndicate. Sure. And and then ideally a bigger syndicate and get picked up by other newspapers and then when a do you think it would have been more work than becoming the lawyer you are today? Well, it, it would have been um, a more transient yes. life. It looked to me like a more transient life because you know the the next career stop would be oh gosh I'm at the, the Fort Wayne <laughs> paper the Buffalo New York Daily paper and now a spot has opened up at the Denver paper sure. or at the Albuquerque paper. Or, you couldn't you know. settle down necessarily. No. And if you wanted to move up professionally, you would have to be open to simply moving wherever the job sure. happened to be. And that that didn't look appealing to me mm -hmm. at the time. I was certain that I wanted to go back to Wisconsin and just stay put. Because you're, rest you're of my born life. and raised Wisconsin, South Side of Milwaukee, yeah. and um, I understand. So that that's how it looked to me at the time, and I 
so I I changed course. So you go to law school. Career. Uh, you go to law school, you graduate, and when you graduate, you get hired as a federal prosecutor. Is mm -mm. that right? Is that the first thing? No, the first thing was a large, by Milwaukee standards, civil firm. Rein okay. Reinhard Berner Van Duren Norris and Rieselbach at the time. Oh, good lord. Now just Reinhard... <laughs> Reinhard Berner, Reinhard, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And you, and and you, what kind of work are you doing there? Well, I I thought what I wanted to do um, was pension work, employee benefits mm. work, and they had a great as a state of Wisconsin employee. <laughs> I I value those types of lawyers. Well, and they had a great practice. They had developed a a wonderful practice in what's called Taft Hartley plans, which were uh, plans that were jointly administered by management and unions, um, and often were multi-employer multi plans. They, they had a great national practice in that area, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I accepted a job offer from them my third year in law school on that supposition that I'd be doing employee benefits work and Almost as soon as I accepted the job, they <laughs> they said, changed, huh? Well, they said, you know, we we actually don't need a first year associate in, <laughs> in employee benefits. We need one in litigation, and um, so we're going to put you there. But 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 it's okay, you know. I I must have looked crestfallen. I probably did. Sure, it's okay. A will let you do employee benefits litigation, and B, you know, when a spot. And an appropriate level opens up again in the in the EB in the Employee Benefits Department. You can transfer it there if that's what you want to do. Uh, so I I fell into litigation. I had no you had no plans for that. No plans. You no, were going to be a behind the scenes guy. Yep. Doing the legwork. I thought I would go a career without ever setting foot in a courtroom hmm. um, or being involved in litigation. <laughs> it didn't seem appealing. To and me. then and then honestly. Uh, however many years later, 30 years later, I guess, let's see, yeah, around 20-something years later, you became one of the most famous lawyers in the country and, dare I say, the world <laughs> for, for litigation. Yeah, well, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, so to speak. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, this was one of many happy accidents. Yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, you know, along the way to that happy accident, you were a, a prosecutor for like 11 months, I believe I've heard a, you quoted as saying. 11 months. I've done my research, Dean, this yes, time. Adam. You know, the first time that we, uh, we talked, I, you were maybe my like fifth interview I've ever done. And I was just, uh, just green, just <laughs> so green. Well, you're, you're. You're scarily prepared today. Um, <laughs> so you spent 11 months as a prosecutor, and you're quoted as saying is, you, you found that you liked the shoes, you just had them on the wrong feet. And I'm curious if you could expound on that a little bit. Well, I, during that time at the civil firm, Reinhard Berner, um, as I told as I just said, I got put in the litigation department and discovered by accident that I really liked both the litigators yeah. personally in the firm and litigation. And um, I fell in with a bunch of young public defenders, again, by accident. The, the, when you say fell in, you just mean like they were your, th those are the people you hung out with and you were friends with them? Or? Yeah, okay. that, they became my friends. I had been away from Milwaukee. Down for, at the local lawyer bar? No, no, <laughs> no. I'd been away from Milwaukee for seven years for school. I came back. I was out of touch with my high school friends by then. And the firm assigned every brand new 
first year lawyer a mentor. Sure. Somebody four, five, six Probably years a good idea. ahead of us, right? And I um, was assigned a wonderful mentor named Ann Willis Reed. And um, Ann and I hit it off, and she very quickly wanted to introduce me to her husband because she thought Tom Reed and I would like each other. And Tom was a young public defender at that point three or four years into the being an assistant state public defender in the Milwaukee trial office. And uh, they were, neither one of them were from Milwaukee. And so on Friday and Saturday nights, essentially every week, Tom and Ann would have a group of people over and grill chicken or make soup. Always comes back to food. (laughs) And uh, their friends were, were Tom's, colleagues at work at the state public defender's office. So I met this wonderful group of young, bright uh, public defenders through Tom and Ann Mm -hmm. um, and got interested in criminal law um, just by hearing their stories and listening to what they did. It does seem like the more exciting part of law. Well, I don't know about exciting, but it but it struck me as personal. It struck me as important. And you said you want to be a problem solver. And I wanted to be a problem solver. And there's there certainly are, you know, you confront major social problems in yeah. criminal law, person by person, one case at a time. And more than anything, I found these people engaging mm. and idealistic. And, um, you know, I could see that they viewed what they were doing as important and worthwhile. And so I got interested in criminal law that way. Again, another accident. Um, I didn't think that, that I ought to be in charge of somebody's <laughs> liberty or, you know, <laughs> trying to keep somebody out of jail. Yeah. So I thought maybe what I ought to do is try prosecution. Um, but first. aren't you still in charge of somebody's liberty at that point? Well, yes, but I didn't realize it sure. quite as clearly, as, and, and you are exactly right about that. Um, you have a good deal to say about somebody's liberty when you're a prosecutor, more than the defense lawyer does. But uh, I didn't. I didn't recognize that at age 27. Uh, I stumbled into a job offer with the United States Attorney's Office, that is the federal prosecutors in... At 27? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that pretty young to become a federal prosecutor? No, that's, a, that's about, about right. That's about it just right. Seems, it seems like, you know, the title, federal prosecutor, sounds so prestigious and whatever that it seems like, oh, this person's been a practicing lawyer for... 20 years and now as a federal prosecutor. Well, I mean, the people who are running the U.S. Attorney's yeah, sure. offices, the, <laughs> the presidential appointees typically yes. have been lawyers for a long time, but many of the line assistant U.S. attorneys are fresh out of law school or nearly so. Okay. And um, so I, you know, I, I had no idea at the time how fortunate I was to get one of those jobs, but I did. I got one. And then... You know, and then very quickly um, learned that being on that side was not for me. Yeah. Um, That I didn't have the spine to prosecute. Um, And I also just didn't have um, an orientation that made me comfortable, again, at age 27, working 
in an organization as large and hierarchical as the United States Department of it's Justice. It's a pretty big one. <laughs> with its 11-volume United States Attorney's right. Manual. And, right. Um, I, do you think that... Uh, do you think it was that you could kind of see the plight of the defendant of like you you more related with like their story than than the narrative of the United States government? Yeah, that's a fair way to to put it. I know it's a pretty um, broad way to put it, right? Too, but, but it's not unfair, and you know many many federal crimes, not all of them, but many of them are so-called victimless crimes. White-collar crimes. Well, or drug drug offenses, um, tax evasion, whatever. I mean, we're we're the, you know, we're all sort of victims, if you will. um, But but then again, very none of us are. (laughs) No, there are things like armed bank robbery that have have very real, you know, personal victims. And there are federal crimes that have absolutely very identifiable victim. But... The 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 day to day stuff. A lot of it often it, it, there's a very diffuse sort of victimization. Yeah. Whereas on the defense side, it was very personal. There was a defendant whose liberty was at stake, oftentimes for a very long time. Uh, and I just I don't know. I you know I could I could lay down on a couch with a psychologist and explore this for weeks, but we're not going to do that. I. I think well, actually, Freud, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Carl Jung? Um, I, I, I think it's that it's enough to say that being on the prosecution side just was not for me. I was lousy at it. I was unhappy doing it, um, and I think the same people in the United States Attorney's Office were probably. Perfectly happy to see me go after about eleven months. <laughs> so it was a it was a, a mutual a happy mutual parting of ways is how it kind of sounds. Um, you know, since the documentary has come out, the first part of the documentary of making a murderer, you have even on this podcast before have talked a lot about the injustice of our justice system, um, and again on the De- deconstructionist podcast. I loved this quote by you, and maybe you remember. Maybe this is something you've said many times. Maybe it was a one-off thing that happened during a conversation, but I really loved it. And you said, "The place, by and large, to seek justice is not in a courthouse, but out in the world." And I'm just curious, what do you mean by that? Do you remember saying that? Is that is that something that you've held with you for years, or what? I I don't remember those exact words, but I've certainly expressed that sentiment hundreds of times. Yeah. Um, over the last three decades or so. And, you know, really what I'm driving at when I say something like that is that by the time you get to a courthouse, everything's all gone wrong. Hmm. Uh, The damage has been done. um, You know, a crime has been committed. um, Somebody's been become a victim. Somebody's had a, a, a great loss of you know, sense of personal safety or loss of life or loss of money, you know, and, and, and just a loss of faith in humanity. Yeah. Because a crime has been committed against them, at least usually in state courts, um, or often in state courts, that's the way it is. A defendant has lost a great deal the moment he's suspected of a crime or arrested. 
charged. Doesn't matter if he wins in the end, his reputation is totally tarnished. Yeah. He's often lost a job. He's lost the support of Fairweather friends, sometimes lost the support of family. Um, You know, his life has changed forever just because he's been charged with a crime. Yeah. And, you know, so so on both sides of the case, there there have been irreparable losses. Restitution to a victim is nice, but but money is all we have as a measure to try to replace what's been lost, and it doesn't hmm. fully replace what's been lost. Doesn't come close for most people. Um, and on the defendant's side, you know, an acquittal is nice if you get one in the end, but they're rare for one, and. For two, the acquittal doesn't give you your reputation back. It doesn't, you know, restore the legal fees you've paid if you were fortunate enough to have enough money to hire a lawyer. It just, it doesn't get you back the severed relationships and the loss of of your own sense of well-being that gets stripped away from you pretty quickly when you're arrested, when you're jailed, when you're forced to live on bail conditions, when you're living for weeks or months or years occasionally with the prospect of a trial for your liberty Hmm. looming in front of you. And so, you know, all we really can do, and, and it's important what we do in courthouses, but what we're doing in a sense is damage control at best in courthouses. It's an interesting way to look at it, yeah. And and we're trying to sort out almost invariably very murky facts. Uh, we're we're uh, working in a realm of remarkable uncertainty that that lawyers and judges lie about all the time. We act like we have certainty about outcomes or certainty about who's right and wrong, who's guilty, who's innocent. Uh, that's a lie almost always Hmm. that uh, lawyers and judges and police officers and probation agents like to tell the public we're dealing with real close shades of gray and gaps in knowability and, and just a lot of murky uncertainty almost all the time. And and hoping to come close to getting it right and hoping to use the fairly blunt tools of the criminal justice system to give everybody something as close to possible as they're due. I like that you just said the blunt tools to hopefully give everybody something that they're due. Because the the difference there is if you're using a very sharp, pristine, you know, precise tool, you're able to make these pristine cuts and and hopefully, you know, segment things to give everybody exactly what they're due. You know, the individual and it's, the justice system is just not made for that. No, it's it not. It is a blunt it tool. It just does not have precision tools. Yeah. And it can't because it's, it's you know, it's, it's working with broken human beings all mm. the time. Um, and so, you know, coming close um, is what happens on a good day in a courthouse and, you know, sort of getting at least generally pointed in the direction of justice is a good day in a courthouse. Man, if you so really, depressing to hear. <laughs> well, but it's true. And I don't, I don't mean to sound so depressing. What I mean to get people focused on is if you want justice, 
you've you've got to intervene and make an impact long before it gets to that the point. crime is yeah. committed or the person is arrested. You've you've got to support primary education. Mm. You've got to support uh, you know the sort of programs that help keep families and communities together. You've got to support you know the basics like after school programs for kids and hot breakfasts for kids whose parents can't afford that and you know better foster care and you've got to support mental health systems you've got to support substance abuse programs you've got to support all the things that that nobody wants to spend get, money on unfortunately that, but they get people pointed toward <laughs> absolutely crime and you know, either committing or becoming the victim of a crime. Yeah. And those who are victims of crimes with with depressing frequency also wind up themselves being accused of crimes at some point in their lives. And those accused of crimes end up being victims of crimes much more often than... So it's very cyclical. Yeah, the, 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 the group of people end up being much the same and the label they're wearing on a given day changes. Um, and, you know, so it, it's not that justice is impossible. It's just that <laughs> if, if we want, if we want to come closer to justice or to have a better shot at giving one another what we're due, the time for us to work on that is before you've become the victim of a crime or before you have slid into, you know, committing small crimes that lead to bigger crimes. Yeah. You know, on our, on our last time that we met together, we talked a little bit about um, the presumption of innocence and how it's, it's nearly impossible to, for, for a jury member to look as a, at a defendant as innocent. Uh, and actually, Jerry was just, uh, Jerry Buting, uh, your uh, partner in the Stephen Avery case. Um, he was just on Dax Shepard's podcast called um, Armchair Expert, and he talked about a, a judge that would start a, a, a case or start a trial by getting off the bench, shaking the hand of the defendant and saying, turning to the jury and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I just shook hands with an innocent man. If you can't agree with that, no shame. Raise your hand. We're going to dismiss you. That's so powerful. Um, so we've kind of talked about how that is kind of a broken piece of the justice system. I'm curious, what do you think a prosecutor would say is broken in the justice system? Boy, I hesitate to speak for any prosecutor. <laughs> well, you've let, been a prosecutor, let alone so I feel for like all of them. You, you can, you have at least some, uh, you know, e even if you'd spent your entire career, you know, being, uh, uh, I can't think of the word, defending, uh, you know, clients as a defense attorney, you would still have some more insight than me, at least, as to what a prosecutor might think about the justice system and what and what's broken. Well, look, I could try to channel a prosecutor and give you, you know, sure. an answer. Your Should I light some was, candles and, and draw a pentagram no, so you can no, channel them? No, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't need to do that. But um, your question was, you know, taken literally, was mm -hmm. what would a prosecutor say is broken about the system? Um, and that I, I could try to channel prosecutors, but it would depend a lot on 
your vantage point as a prosecutor. Are you a federal prosecutor? Sure. Or are you a state prosecutor? If you're a state prosecutor, are you in a rural county somewhere or are you in a big city? Um, but do you think that, but, do you think that uh, in general that a person like Ken Krantz would say, well, the problem with the justice system is these are, are these asshole defense attorneys who believe the lies of these horrible human beings and defend them. Is is that going to be the general thing that's, quote unquote, wrong with the justice system? Well, one thing, Adam, you're not going to get me to do is to channel Ken Kratz. Um, <laughs> Damn it. Or any Dean, other. Come on. Or any other specific <laughs> prosecutor. In Wisconsin. <laughs> but, you know, that said, I'd be, surpri- I'd be very surprised if you brought Ken Kratz in as a guest and you said the problem is asshole defense lawyers. Sure. Um, I, that would surprise me. There, there is a I, I sort think, of teamwork, I think you might, right? or, you know, many prosecutors but... might say, uh, you know, the problem is that sentences don't actually work, that, sure. that, that people aren't reformed. There's a lot that, of recidivism. Yeah, there's a lot of recidivism or revolving door in the justice system, whatever you want to call it. I think you hear that yeah. complaint from a lot of prosecutors, um, from from a significant number of law enforcement officers. I don't know that that would be my complaint as a prosecutor. If 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 your question were different, you know, what do I think I would say? Um, are there shortcomings of the system? Had I spent the last, you know, thirty years prosecuting rather than leaving after less than a year? Um, and but you know, different different prosecutors would have a different take. Yeah. On it. Yeah. I know it's a little bit of an unfair question to ask somebody. No, it's not. What unfair. will somebody just... else say? <laughs> it's just a hard question to to actually answer. Um, so actually, uh, going a little bit back, not not even a little bit, going directly back to the Stephen Avery case, something that we didn't talk about on the last uh, episode that you were on, and something that has bothered me, and I just this is a question of purely not knowing the answer. Um, in in Brendan's case and in Stephen's case, uh, the prosecutor presented two different stories for how things happened. And I'm curious, as a defense attorney, can you challenge that and say, well, in court, you said this is how it's happened. And now here you're saying this is how it happened. Which is it? Well, you have just put your finger on the specific problem maybe bothered me most about that was the thing i was angry avery and dassey cases considered as a pair yeah okay um inconsistent prosecution theories of the same crime in two successive i would say not even inconsistent but but blatantly contrary yeah, inconsistent, yeah, yes, yes. irreconcilable. Yes, I just I want I feel so strongly about it. I want to use strong words. Well, and <laughs> no, fair enough. And I I I I think that they were irreconcilable theories. Absolutely, of the same crime presented to successive juries. You know, in in the case in the cases of two people who could have been co-defendants in the same trial. Yeah, theory, um, and. Look, um, w- one of the the shameful qualities of American appellate jurisprudence is that mostly our courts have tolerated that 
prosecutorial practice. Yeah. Um, and they, let me let me give you the quintessential, or or the you know sort of the paradigmatic case, if you will. In in many states, if the state is going to pursue the death penalty, each defendant is entitled to his or her own trial. So let's suppose that you have a gas station robbery in which the clerk at the gas station is shot and killed. All right? Common sort of, unfortunately, a common yeah. kind of... Um, a petty crime that goes wrong. Yeah. Robbery and murder yeah. um, scenario. And let's say two people are arrested for the crime, but pathology establishes that one bullet was fired and killed the unfortunate clerk. Now you've got two people charged. One of them, is presumably, if, if the police got the right two people, so sure. to speak, yeah. one is the shooter and one isn't. One played some other role in the crime. Again, if we assume the police got the right two people. And now they're going to get separate trials as a matter of state law in most states if the state is seeking the death penalty for mm-hmm. one or both of them, right? And that's where a lot of these cases arise in that kind of a paradigmatic case where the state is seeking the death penalty against defendant A. So at A's trial, the state argues that he was the trigger man, that, that his crime was especially heinous because he pulled the trigger and yeah. killed the gas station clerk. And the jury either does or doesn't, assuming there's a guilty verdict, the jury either does or doesn't affix the sentence of death or recommend a death sentence to the judge. Okay? Now we go to Defendant B's trial for the very same robbery and murder. And there are all kinds of cases where the state then has turned around in B's case and argued that that B was the trigger man in an effort to secure a death sentence against B. And that, that of necessity is not a search for the truth. Yeah. It's a search for punishment. It's a search for enhanced punishment. And indeed, maybe both people are, are guilty as the day is long. But it's not a search for the truth where only one of them could have pulled the trigger and you're arguing to two separate juries that first one and then the other did that. And But so my question is, is as a defense attorney, can you call somebody to to the stand? Let let's say in both cases they use the same expert witness to whatever. Or even if it's different, could you call could you call the first witness, the first expert witness who presented evidence to say for sure defendant A did this and call them to the stand in defendant B's uh uh, trial and say you testified this is that what you're still standing by i mean even down to could you call if it's the same prosecutor could you call that prosecutor to the stand and say you you presented this as your well case? you you usually cannot call the prosecutor sure. uh, but let's break this apart adam okay first of all you only can consider doing any of that if you're representing defendant B. Yeah. If you're if you're the second to yeah, go to trial. Absolutely. When you're the first to go to trial, you don't know what the second trial is going to bring from the prosecution. 
but if you happen to be representing defendant B, uh, if there's an expert who somehow has said, you know, in the first trial that A was the trigger man, yes, you could you could cross-examine that expert in B's trial and establish for B's jury that earlier he had testified sure. that in his expert opinion to a reasonable degree of certainty in his field, A was the trigger man. Now, I don't know that... that Usually that would not be the situation. Usually these are prosecutorial arguments rather than evidence from yeah. the witness stand. Sure, um, it's a it's rather opening statement, closing argument from the prosecutor, uh, where he or she casts a narrative around the evidence and urges a jury to find that A or B was the trigger man, depending on which trial we're talking about. Um, so, you know, you, you, you wouldn't usually get a clean opportunity to confront a witness in B's trial with his contradictory testimony in A's trial. Sure. But, um, and then ordinarily you're not allowed to call the prosecutor himself or you herself. Ordinarily, what are the exceptions? <laughs> well, <laughs> and if it's too much to go into, because no, we are running I, I, I a mean, little bit short on time, but. The exception would be, I suppose, if it was testimony essential to the defense and there was no other witness from whom okay. the testimony could be elicited. You could ask to call the prosecutor. Are most judges going to want to let you do that? No, they're <laughs> yeah. not. And um, and and American courts are pretty stingy about allowing you to put in at B's trial a statement that a lawyer made in A's trial. You know, which A is hearsay, and B would fall into a, a hearsay exception, an exception to the yeah. hearsay rule, and be admissible in B's trial only if. It was a statement of a party opponent, and a, and, a, and a prosecutor is not necessarily the party. Sure. Rather, the prosecutor represents the party, the, you know, the people of the state of Wisconsin. So I'm not going to be whatever. satisfied here, is what you're You're not going to be satisfied, <laughs> and I never have been satisfied. Indeed, I think it's outrageous yeah. that American courts usually, there's a few cases to the contrary, but usually American courts have said it's not a denial of due process for the state to change theories and present an utterly contradictory or irreconcilable theory of guilt at a second trial for the same yeah. crime. Yeah. And 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 again, how do we claim as lawyers that truth seeking is a primary goal when we're allowed uh to argue for convenience uh, that black is white, and then that white is black. Hmm. Oh, that's rough. So some of my uh, rapid-fire questions we can maybe talk about. Um, bathroom sink blood uh, for Stephen Avery. Has that always been... That, that's something he's always talked about from the beginning? That I really can't... You can't, I, you can't talk that about, I can't I talk guess, about I suppose. because you're asking me what my client told right. me at the time. See, that's the hard thing. Is, and, and that's actually been part of the hard thing of getting questions from people from Reddit is like, I read some of the questions. I go, he, 
Dean can't talk about this. He he, he just can't. Well, most most of that can talk about the case, but I certainly can't disclose what my client what said. said to me during the course of the representation. One of the questions that I saw most on Reddit was about uh, Stephen's mom verifying uh, that she gave him mail. I I don't remember. I mean, it's been three years since I watched the first doc. And is that something you can comment on? Whether or not Dolores confirmed that she actually gave him mail. I don't even remember the context. I know. Of, she, I think, I, I don't I think it's the about question. the day that I'm Teresa sorry. was murdered, uh, or the day that she was at the Avery um, property. Is that Dolores was somehow his alibi that she saw him that day because she gave him some mail? I don't know. They didn't give me any context, I, and I, I, you know, I watched the documentary once, and that's the other thing. Like a lot of these questions, I go, guys, the, this was 15 years ago. No, for Dean, no, it or was, however long it was, it, it was over 12. And yeah, I honestly, I'm, so, just, I'm sorry, Dean, for rounding up. <laughs> I, I honestly just don't remember. Yeah, you that know, sometimes detail at I all. think, you know, part of the problem is, is, uh, you know, when the documentary came out, it was what nine years uh, since the end of the trial, something like that. Mm-hmm. It came out. In December 2015, and Stephen's trial ended on St. Patrick's Day 2007, so eight and a half years, yeah, roughly. And so I think some people saw this documentary and said, "Well, well, this this finished, you know, six months ago, and they released it as a documentary, even though it's pretty clear in the documentary that's not the case." But you know, Americans are, you know, Americans, and uh, but then even now, people are asking these questions like this. Like this was the last case that you've ever had, and 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 your entire focus of your career is based on this case, and it's just like Dean has has a life and a job, and and so it's tough on some of those. But um, can you explain to me what a Denny suspect is? That I can do. Yeah, um, a Denny suspect would be an an alternate perpetrator, you know, a, th- a third party who. Would have might have had the opportunity uh, to commit the crime, and or and motive? It, would you? And would in you Wisconsin a now, yeah. in Wisconsin, because of the Avery case, it's not just opportunity and legitimate tendency for this person to commit the crime, but now third, you, you also have to prove that the person had a motive. Does to the prosecutor the crime. have to prove that the person they're prosecuting had a motive? No. Why is that fair? It's not. Uh, okay, moving on. I, I don't want to get into that if it's not fair. Well, you said rapid fire, <laughs> I know, and that's I know, the answer. It's I not know, fair. I know. Um, I, one thing I was thinking about and reflecting on uh, just from the documentary and then uh, just uh, the spotlight you've been in since then, uh, I wrote down this. People have an idea of defense attorneys as rich white men with no scruples. Making a murderer and and the spotlight on you and Jerry have kind of pushed back against that. I have no question here, but what do you think about that statement? Well, unfortunately, in the United States, criminal defense lawyers are disproportionately white men. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's still the most sort of male-dominated uh, corner of American law in many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, now, public defenders' offices have done a good job of bringing women in, people of color, but the private criminal defense bar is rem- really lacks diversity. Yeah, um, more than most, you know, other sort of subdisciplines within American law, and I we could speculate all day on why that is. I guess um, when I say push back on, on it, I mean like 
the no scruples part. You know, we, <laughs> we, we, we think of these defense attorneys as being just really scummy, like, oh, I'm going to lie for my, my, my client because they're going to pay me, you know, because they're the head of the mob and, and they're going to give me a briefcase full of money. Uh, I really think uh, the, the biggest uh, combating thing against that idea has been making a murderer and, and seeing you and, and Jerry. Honestly, it, from my vantage point, I see you both as kind of like everyman characters who like, I could sit down and have a drink with either of you and, and just talk about and shoot the shit about whatever. Um, I don't look at, like, I've met you twice now. I don't think of you as this highfalutin attorney who is going to talk above my head. I think that's something that- I, cu- I couldn't talk above your head if I wanted to, Anna. <laughs> But, well, you could on some things. I, I, I guarantee. I doubt it. it. I doubt it. Um, no, I, look, there are unscrupulous criminal defense lawyers, sure. just like there are unscrupulous garbage men. Yeah. and you know, every everybody, every other walk of life. I don't know that there's any more unscrupulous as a, as a percentage matter that either, that criminal defense lawyers are more unscrupulous than anybody else. I personally know. A lot of very scrupulous uh, defense lawyers and a lot of very scrupulous prosecutors and police officers. In fact, scruples are the norm. Um, Can we just talk about how much the word scruples is awesome? (laughs) (laughs) I love that we've said scruples are scrupulous many times. You know, but but that's not to say that we all are. Yeah, or that we all are all the time. Um, You know, because again, you're all human. that's that's what I that's that would be my theme or my my refrain if I had a song and could sing, which is we are all human. We are all human. Maybe um, maybe you could write to your favorite musician of all time, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I told you I did my research, Jerry. Or you're not Jerry Dean, sorry. <laughs> Boy, I've been Ken today, I've been Jerry, I've been all kinds I'm of sorry. All I'm, kinds of I'm interesting so sorry. people. I'm, you today. know, I'm I am really bad with names. You know, we do the live event uh Madison Story Slam live events. And I see people every month and we, we usually have around 100 to 125 people that show up. And every month, without fail, I'll see somebody walk in and I'll go, is it first time? And like, no, I've been here four or five times. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. I'm horrible. <laughs> um, what do you love about law? Like, why do you stay in it besides the fact that it, you know, pays your bills? It's human. Yeah. It enmeshes you in human crisis. It, in, it allows you to see the best and worst in people. Sometimes in the very same people. Oh, that's um, interesting to see people at their worst and and you know struggling to be better. Um, and it allows you to try to help people solve their problems. Hmm. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's tying together a lot of things we've talked about for the last fifty minutes or whatever it's been. Um, and it, it it is just very human work. Hmm. I like that. What opportunity has the documentary given you that has surprised you? It's given me the opportunity to speak to interesting people and to have uh, people interested in what I have to say. I didn't, I, I did not <laughs> expect that um, of the documentary, even, you know, the day it came out, even, you know, knowing 
I found out a couple of weeks before it came out that Netflix had bought it. Sure. And uh, I still didn't expect to have had the breadth of opportunities to engage well, you've, you've with traveled people on criminal justice all over issues. the world talking about the justice system at this point. I, I have. I've, I've had this remarkable opportunity, um, just, just remarkable opportunity. I've been, you know, from Tasmania in the Southern <laughs> Hemisphere, uh, that far south to Tromsø, Norway in the Northern Hemisphere, 500 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And by the way, the town with both the northernmost brewery in the world and the northernmost university in the world. Wow. Um, and to a number of places in between, those two, you know, near polar um, opposites. Um, and it's been a great gift um, to just be able to engage uh, people who are not lawyers, people who are students, people who are just members of the community, you know, not just, but yeah. I mean, who are members of the community from all walks of life, uh, and lawyers, you know, and judges, yeah. you, you name it. I've, I've, I've had a really, I feel rich, <laughs> you know, not financially, but I feel rich in the sense of having not had this opportunity to meet thousands of people at this point and to engage with them, to listen to them and to speak to them about mostly universal issues of trying to administer justice for one another. Mm -hmm. How has your fame inconvenienced you? And, and, I, and I, kind of, <clears throat> I kind of feel like you're the kind of guy who might cringe at the word fame. Is it, am, am I <laughs> close in all to that? Well, I don't, I don't, you know. I mean, no, you can't I, deny it, right? I, I don't want to split hairs on, you know, on fame, but, but recognition. I sure. Mean, my visibility. I would, I would say um, fame. I mean. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I, again, I'm That's not, I'm not going to yeah. quibble about, sure. about the word choice. I, I, I understand what you mean. Um, how's it inconvenienced me? Yeah. I've lost my anonymity. Um, and in to ways, a large degree, do you think? I, I think I, I'm, you know, I, I think more than I even recognize. And sure. what I mean by that is um, I often don't recognize anymore when I've been recognized. <laughs> um, and and my, wife, my wife is more attuned sure. to when I've been recognized. She's more attuned to the people who are holding their phones like this and <laughs> trying to take a or, sneaky picture. Or whatever. But, um, you know, but I... In the last week, I've had two sort of um, off-putting experiences. Really? Um, it, it, here, in, in the sense, um, one about a week ago, um, or, or now it's probably two weeks ago, I, I ran into a, a federal prosecutor I've known for a long time and like a lot. He, he's... He's from Milwaukee, but he was in Madison. I ran into him, bumped into him in a restaurant in Madison. He was with a, a group of guys, you know, about his age. Um, and I figured I'd go over to their, you know, to his table and say hi to yeah. him because I've known him for 25 years and I, and I really like him. Didn't know the, the guys he was with. And as I went over there to say hi to him, you know, and, and just say, hey, what are you doing in town? They were in town for the track and field 
meet the, a couple sure. weeks ago. Um, and, um, you know, exchanged pleasantries for a minute or two with everybody and then went back to my table. And later, you know, more recently, you know, that was a couple weeks ago, I don't know, last week, uh, this fellow called me up and said, hey, you know, you you increased my credibility or something like that. <laughs> I said, what do, you, what do you mean? He said, well, I mean, the, my, my, my college buddies he was with couldn't believe that I was on a first name basis with Dean Strang. And I, and I, that was, that was really unsettling in a, really? in a sense because none of them gave any visible, sure. you know, indication that they recognized me or had heard of me or, I mean, they, they were pleasant people. They said, hi, nice to meet you. You know, it was a couple of minutes, but I had no sense that, that anybody recognized hmm. me. Um, and then today, earlier today, you know, getting new glasses. Um, Which look great, by the way. No, these are the old ones. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> the new ones will look better, I hope. <laughs> at least they'll look newer. Um, you know, at, at the shop I went to for the glasses today, um, you know, somebody said to me, hey, you know, gee, we all, we all know who you are. And again, they, they hadn't, there, there was no cue. Yeah from anybody and the reason it's just just a little off-putting is um you know i i i'm not always as gracious as i want to be i'm sure. not always as patient as i want to be i'm i'm not always holding myself out in the way my mom would have wanted me to hold myself out. Well, it goes and back to I'm the, human. It goes back to that character is who you are when nobody's watching and now you're in a state of being where everybody's watching. And well, that's potentially, and maybe maybe that's a good way to put it. Um but I'm I'm not always the guy my mom would have wanted me to be. Yeah. And so that feels Yeah, that that's feels a lot uncomfortable. Of it, yeah. it feels like a loss of anonymity. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry for that. No, no, I, I, you know, look, I, I to some extent have have invited it. Comes with the territory um, because I, you know, when given speaking opportunities, I've accepted many of them. Yeah, I thought on balance, the ones I've accepted were were worth doing. Were worth the time away from work and away from family and whatever other inconvenience. Um, and. You know, I could have said no to all of it, but I don't think that would have been the right thing to do. I, yeah. you know, I think I've, I've been given an opportunity to try to advance a discussion um, about how we can do better administering justice, and I've wanted to take it. Oh, I don't blame you for it. All right, so here we go with Reddit questions, and and really be as rapid fire with these as you want with your answers. Uh, this is probably my favorite question that I got. Um, are the inconsistencies we see in the documentary, in the first part of the documentary, pretty normal for a small town uh, investigators? Uh, do you think it's a case of smaller areas doing the best that they can with what they have? I'm not sure I exactly understand the question, but are, they, are the shortcomings in the investigation common uh, among smaller I, I think what they're saying law is enforcement departments that, that there are inconsistencies in in the investigation uh that are pointed out in trial and in the documentary and i think the main question is is that common that that you'd find all that or is this an exceptionally 
whatever case where there's all of these things that it's like, well, wait a minute. Like this well, is just incredible that okay. this is happening when it shouldn't have. Okay. Back back to the refrain. Police are human beings. They yes. put on their pants one leg at a time. And and you know, human beings make mistakes and and human beings would do things differently if they had it to do over again. Um were there um aspects of this investigation that looked to me like more than mistakes? Yes, there were. And and to the extent that I still have real suspicions that at least some evidence was planted deliberately. You've just answered another question. In this way. case, um I guess I'm happy to say that that in my own experience is really rare. Yeah. So I I just really quick want to touch on that is that you have suspicions that evidence some of it at least was definitely planted. Um I and I I have always kind of operated under the sense after watching the documentary and speaking to you one time that maybe you didn't necessarily believe that but that was what's best for your client that 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 was the best argument to make but you're saying I there is part of me that believes this is likely what happened. Let's take the Toyota key. Sure. Okay, which another to super me is frustrating. The, the principal example. Yes. I cannot, even 12 years later, construct for myself uh-huh. a plausible explanation for that key being discovered as it was. Yeah. Um, innocently. It I, is I, I the most suspicious I cannot. thing. That doesn't ever. mean it was planted. What it means to me is that it probably was, and that that the the likelihood that that key was planted deliberately by some law enforcement officer I see as the most reasonable inference from the available facts. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you there. <laughs> uh, 2005 was a very different time. Uh, both through technology and uh, the person who wrote this question is is inferring that it was a different time for the way that evidence was collected and documented and things like that. The main question uh, that this person has is, has there been a significant change since 2005 in evidence cataloging, documenting, and gathering since then? Uh, would the same crime scene, crime scene today be processed differently by those same people? And again, maybe you don't know because you're not a police officer, but... In general, crime scene... Uh, investigation and the collection of evidence has not changed much okay. since 2005 in general. And um, it still often leaves a pretty large gap between the actual and the ideal. Um, now, <clears throat> there were some mistakes made, probably most acutely visible in the handling of the burn pit where sure. you know charred human bones were found that that fell below the standard you would have expected in 2005 the way that that site was was handled and and um the way evidence was recovered from it fell well below what I think the reasonable norms were in 2005, in 1985, in 1965. Um, 
you know, other aspects of the investigation probably were at or above the norms for the day. The answer, though, is that the norms really haven't changed all that much. Um, Both law enforcement and law generally, at least in this country, are very slowly evolving, very resistant to change, uh, very attached to status quo. Hmm. Well, that's good to know. And and maybe kind of, (laughs) because it's not like things were... It doesn't seem from the documentary that things were great back then, so maybe it's not great to know that. Um, how uh, how often do you use a defense expert? Uh, and my understanding is that a defense expert is usually a paid expert. Is that correct? Generally. How, how often are you paying an expert who then comes back and tells you news you don't want to hear? Is that common? Oh, that happens. Yeah, that that happens. So you, you hire somebody to consult yeah. on a case. Uh, you know, to it could be any number of things: forensic accounting, um, DNA analysis, whatever. So you'll hire somebody to consult. You'll ask them to take a look at first of all the police reports, the material you have from the state, and then maybe to do independent testing. And sometimes you get the results you hope, and sometimes you don't. Um, if you get what you hope, you then consider using that consultant as a witness at a trial or whatever evidentiary proceeding lies ahead. Yeah. I think, I think the public has a, a view of, uh, you know, wit- expert witnesses as well. If, if you meet my asking price, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll say whatever you want. <laughs> I think that's the general yeah, you know, uh, thought if, of what if it you're, is. If you're a smart lawyer, um, you don't use, those kinds of experts you you yeah. use honest people who will give you a straight call on yeah. something that's that is smart uh what what case i, I feel like this is a, a given but maybe we're wrong uh what case in your career has had the most impact on you i would say that the avery case just because of everything like well, it depends on how you're going to define yeah. impact the, right exactly that's what i was going to say adam i mean you know, there's different ways to think of impact. Um, for for me, probably my answer would be if I had to pick one that's had the most impact on me is on me. Yeah, you know, yeah. In terms of shaping me, uh, Avery would be close, but it it might well be in second place to uh a case I had in Alabama for a man named John Ronald Daniels, um, which was the only post conviction capital punishment case I've ever had. And I had it for about six years. Hmm. Um and that that has had a a lasting um uh, effect on me as a lawyer and as a person. Well, maybe some other time we can go, we can talk about that case. But uh, another person asked, and this is actually kind of tied into to this or to what we just talked about. Uh, are there other criminal cases throughout the country uh, that are suspicious convin- con- convictions that have caught your eye that make you go, man, I wish I'd worked on that case because that is something about that is wrong. Boy, I, I don't walk around wishing to be involved in in cases <laughs> I where the, that is a weird way. where the conviction looks wrong yeah. um that that's your nightmare yeah you, you, you know you, people ask sometimes you know how how can you represent somebody you, 
you know is guilty or you think is guilty. Actually, the, the, if you're going to ask that question, the question you ought to be asking is, how can you represent somebody you know or think is innocent? Those are the ones that shorten That's gonna your. Be tough. Those are the ones that shorten your life. Yeah. Um, well, one of my questions yeah. was: was do lost cases keep you up? And it's got to be it, especially the ones that you know are innocent who've been convicted. Well, or I, I believe are innocent, yes. or believe are wrongfully convicted. Yeah, and some of the ones I believe are guilty who yeah. are convicted. The the result keeps me up. Um, either I I thought that if the system followed its ideals and its rules, it wouldn't have been convicted. Or more often, I thought I've ended up thinking that the punishment was wildly disproportionate to the actual culpability of the person or to uh, the goals that punishment legitimately might achieve. And yeah, those, of course, those cases keep you up and, um, and they should. Yeah. Um, and and they eat at you. They never stop eating at you, I, I suspect. I mean, you know, I don't know. They haven't stopped eating at me so far anyway. Hmm. You you said, uh, you talked about people that you probably think are guilty, but you feel like uh, the system, based on our system, they shouldn't have been convicted. Do you think that's fair when that happens? <laughs> I mean, that's a really, that's an unfair question. Well, it might be fair to the guilty person. Is it fair to us societally, um, you know, to convict someone by by transgressing our own ideals, yeah. by bending our own rules? Is it John Adams? By sacrificing our own integrity? No, it, yeah. it's, it's, that's not what we ought to be doing. Um, you know, uh, we've we got to have the courage and the decency, um, I think, to to look first at what we're doing hmm. and whether what we're doing is right as lawyers, as judges, as police officers, as citizens, and then look only second at what the accused did. Sure. And um, so, to my mind, um, you know, when 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 police violate the Fourth Amendment in seizing evidence or when police um, coerce a confession, manipulate a confession dishonestly out of somebody uh, who you know, may have thought giving a false confession was the way to please the police officer or may have been tricked into giving an unreliable confession, um, I don't want to see that evidence used. Hmm. I, I, I think the Constitution is... Uh, the law of first order in this country and the various criminal statutes come after that. And I think integrity in dealing with, take a 16-year-old learning disabled kid in custody, I think the hmm. integrity in how you deal with that person and eliciting a reliable statement from him, if you're going to elicit one at all, is a value of first order. and you know, prosecuting this kid comes second yeah. to that, honestly. Yeah. I really do. Um, I, th I think we need to look in the mirror first and decide, you know, have we lived up to our ideals and standards um, before glibly judging others?
And then a final, uh, more fun question from Reddit was, uh, do you prefer waffles or pancakes? Well, pancakes. <laughs> pancakes is what I order, even though... You know, the idea of a waffle always sounds good. I end it up does. with the pancakes. Yeah, pancakes are better. I end up with it's, the it's the It's the more common choice. Or not common, but it's the easier choice, maybe. I don't know. A waffle but, can be but, involved. Yeah, but and and keep the whipped cream off both of them, oh, okay? Keep I am with you. I am with you. And I don't want a stuffed waffle if I do go with a waffle. What's a stuffed waffle? It's like stuffed with like fruit and stuff. No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. Just no, give no. me a plain waffle. Slice maple bananas syrup. on top, mm. blueberries mm. on top, fine. Sure. No, no, don't, no, don't, <laughs> don't stuff waffles. But some people get real decadent and do like a chocolate mousse stuffed waffle. And it's like, no, come no. No, 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 no. This no. is not dessert. It's breakfast. You know, that, that's a come on, man yeah. sort of moment. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, Dean, finally, my last question. I asked you this last time. I've asked every guest my last question to them is, who is the most interesting contact in your phone? I don't remember who you said last time. You might have said your wife. You might have said a, a different family member. Boy, the most interesting to me or interesting in I let in the general. guest I let the guest uh define the way they hear the question. Um because I think that says something the the way they choose to take the question, it yeah. says, you know, more than what their actual answer answer is. I'm gonna take the fifth. Oh, I actually love that answer. That's such a great answer. All right, cool. I'm accepting that. Uh Dean, thank you so much for coming on today and uh you know, last time was a blast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and uh, just again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Adam. Absolutely.